This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good morning once again and welcome to our first conference plenary session, Understanding, Measuring, and Coping with Risk, What We Know. This is a complex and obviously a critically important topic. We will begin this morning by exploring the nature of risk itself and how scholars build and extend theoretical models to real world problems and threats. We will then move to two of the toughest issues on the international agenda today, nuclear proliferation and the risk of nuclear materials finding their way into terrorist hands. And we're so fortunate to have three of the world's foremost experts with us today to address these issues. Let me introduce all three to you now so that their presentations, much like the presentations by the secretaries this morning, uh, may flow seamlessly. And we will, of course, leave time for your questions. Elizabeth Pate Cornell is the Bert and Didi McMurtry Professor in the School of Engineering here at Stanford and Chair of the Department of Management Science and Engineering. In fact, she served as Chair since the formation of the department in January 2000. She also serves with me as Co-Chair of the University's International Initiative dedicated to enhancing Stanford's capacity to engage productively uh, with a world at risk primarily through collaborative research and teaching that link all seven Stanford, uh, of Stanford schools, as well as the Hoover Institution, uh, the Freeman Spogli Institute, the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and many other centers and programs on campus. Professor Pate Cornell's primary research and teaching interests are engineering risk analysis and risk management. She is focused on the application of probabilistic risk assessment to real-world problems, ranging from the dangers associated with space travel to the management of offshore platforms for oil and gas production. She is currently working on assessments of medical devices, software failure risks, and counterterrorism. Highly respected and sought after for her expertise, Professor Pate Cornell is a member of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board the National Academy of Engineering, and in fact serves on the Council of the National Academy, and the boards of Aerospace uh, Corporation. She chairs the Board of Advisors of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. Her engineering degree is from the Institut Polytechnique in Grenoble, France, and she holds a Master's in Operations Research and a PhD in Engineering Economic Systems uh, at Stanford. Scott Sagan is Professor of Political Science at Stanford, Director of FSI's Center for International Security and Cooperation, or as it's known by its acronym, CSAC, and a Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute. He is one of the world's foremost experts on nuclear security, nuclear proliferation in South Asia, and current threats to the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Uh, he has convened leaders from China, India, Pakistan, Russia, and the United States in policy workshops to reduce the risk of nuclear war in South Asia. He's worked with the International Atomic Energy Agency and its chairman, Mohammed Al-Baradai, to advance the cause of non-proliferation and directed CSAC's work 
on improving our own um, capacity to respond to acts of terror in American cities. Professor Sagan has served as a special assistant to the director of the organization of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon, as a consultant to the office of the Secretary of Defense, and as a consultant to Los Alamos National Laboratory. He founded Stanford's Interschool Honors Program in International Security Studies in 2000, where he and his colleagues produce, year after year, an impressive and indeed a wonderfully talented uh, group of future security specialists. Scott is the author of a number of books on nuclear strategy, national security, and nuclear nonproliferation. Their titles are listed in your program book, and most recently has written an excellent piece entitled Keeping the Bomb from Tehran that appeared in the September-October issue of Foreign Affairs, and I commend uh, Scott's article to you. Professor Sagan received a uh, BA in government from Oberlin College, uh, and his PhD is from Harvard University, but don't hold that against him now that he is securely in our grasp. <laughs> Siegfried Hecker is a visiting professor at CSAC and director emeritus of the uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, Sig's research interests and expertise include plutonium science, nuclear weapons policy, and nuclear security including nonproliferation and counterterrorism. He has respected the world over, and indeed, earlier this month, the former Indian Foreign and Finance Minister, Jaswant Singh, said at Stanford, and I'm quoting here, that it was a privilege to be in the same room with him. Now, Singh has an uncanny ability to make complicated technical and scientific matters comprehensible to laymen, for which I am especially most grateful. Over the past 15 years, SIG has fostered uh, cooperative efforts with Russian nuclear laboratories to secure the vast stockpiles of um, fissile material in the former Soviet Union. And he was part of a private group invited to visit the North Korean nuclear facility at Yongbyon in 2004, an inspection that revealed that North Korea had removed sp spent plutonium fuel rods from the facility's cooling pool uh, the first step toward reprocessing the fuel into nuclear weapons. He returned to Pyongyang in August 2005 and again in November 2006, where he met with the head of North Korea's nuclear center. He's currently working on the challenges of a nuclear India, Pakistan, and, and North Korea, and on the nuclear ambitions of Iran. Armed with a bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree in metallurgy from Case Western Reserve University, uh, SIG works closely with the Russian Academy of Science, Sciences and the U.S. National Academies, serving on the National Academy of Engineering Council and is chair of the Committee on Counterterrorism Challenges uh, for the U.S. and Russia. We will begin and finish in the order indicated. That is, first we will hear from Professor Pate Cornell, then from uh, Professor Sagan, and finally from um, Dr. Hecker. So, without further ado, Professor Pate Cornell. Thank you, Chip. It has been a great pleasure to co-chair the International Initiative with Chip Blacker, and I'm delighted to be here today to present what I would call a practical and logical 
views of risks and uncertainties, which is not exactly the most pleasant topic in the world for many people, but the good news is that the worst is not always certain. So uh, let me tell you what we mean by uncertainty and where we find uncertainties. In two cases, what might be going on now and what might be going on in the future. Now both, in fact, are the same basic problem because we have incomplete information and it's very important in that case to characterize uncertainty, for example, because we might need to set priorities, given that we are not immensely rich and that days have only 24 hours. So uh, let me start with uh, what I would call the hazard of crystal balls and predictions. I will quote to you two uh, statements that I've found dangerous. They are, uh, they are we weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, stated in 2003. North Korea will collapse in five years, stated in 1997. Uh, these kinds of firm predictions, when we are not absolutely sure, might be entertaining on television. I've seen, in fact, some hosts pressing their guests into doing that. But I think hazardous when it's, they become the basis of policy decisions. Now, there are very often multiple possible alternatives, explanations, and possible scenarios that include the good, the bad, and in between. A bad habit, but a common practice, is generally to present as certain what looks like most likely and keep one's fingers crossed that one is right. I think that a better but more complicated option, let's face it, is to try to present as complete and at the same time simple set of alternative scenarios and try to communicate their likelihoods and their consequences. Now, how do I measure, probability, uh, measure uncertainty in my field using probability? Now, probability, what is it? There are two ways to look at it. And statistics is only one of the ways. Statistics are a good approach when they are relevant. They apply to the case we're talking about. In medical field, it's essential. And when the situation is stable, that's what the scientists call steady state. There is another approach, which is a degree of belief of different experts, properly structured and probably, uh, properly communicated and aggregated together. Let me give you one example of the use of probability in communications. Napoleon, in the afternoon of the Battle of Waterloo, around 1 p.m., saw a black cloud on the horizon and thought it was another one of the storms that had been plaguing the battle on that day. Well, it was the troops of Marshall, Prussian Marshal Blucher, and at that time it was bad news. So he turned to Marshal Soult, who was next to him, said, Soult, this morning, we had about 90% chance of victory. By now, it's still 60%, because we know the end of the story. But that was his views and his way of communicating to sort what was going on. Now, what do we do in reality when we are trying to estimate the risk? We try to decompose the scenarios into their components. For example, what will it take for the terrorist acquisition of nuclear weapons? Uh, getting the fuel and reaching the fuel, constructing the object and, and uh, detonating it. And we use the, the opinions of different experts for different parts of the problem, and then we integrate everything logically. The best way, perhaps, to show you what we do is to show you a practical example that might be of interest to some of you who live in this area. What are the chances that you're going to lose your house in an earthquake? Well, there are two questions here. 
does the earthquake occur or not every year? And given that it occurs, do you lose your house or not? I've simplified the problem here, looking at black and white uh, possibilities, but you can imagine all the intermediates, large earthquakes or small ones, and you know, the level of damage to your home. Now, what information do you need? First, you need the probability of the earthquake for which you go to, um, to consult seismologists. Say it's one in 70 of getting a large one in this area. Then you need to get the probability of losing your home given that you have the earthquake. And for which you go to see a structural engineer who's going to tell you uh, what it is and suppose that it's one in a hundred. Then you obtain the result that the annual probability that you're going to lose your house in an earthquake is the product of the two, one in 7,000. Not very large uh, in the grand scheme of things, but if there are some very inexpensive things that you can do uh, to prevent that from happening, or very expensive ones uh, if you choose to do so, it's a good place to base your decision. Now, let's get to national security. Another example of terrorist attacks of different times on the US, then what you may want to try to do is to try to define what kinds of events and what kinds of scenarios would have to unfold for each of the different kinds of weapons we can think of, different targets, different sites, and the like. Now, what is the source of your information in that, in that, uh, in that uh, area? Intelligence. Now, open sources and others. And what's happening in that case is that you, you receive in sequence pieces of information from several sources. And the question, of course, is how do you integrate all that so that you do not jump on the last piece of information that you have received, forgetting what has happened before, what you knew before, and how it fits in a big picture. So again, uh, what is important in this case is what, what can happen, what are the chances, what are the consequences, and how do we compute, or how do we estimate, how do we get into a logical mode of reasoning as to what are the chances of these scenarios, and that's called updating. Let me give you a medical example because that one, always, it's, it's always uh, close enough to home to, to be uh, explanatory. Assume for a minute that uh, you belong to a, a group of people who has a chance in a thousand of having a nasty disease. Now, there is a test out there, and you're going to take that test, and that test is pretty good. It has only 5% chance of telling you that you have the disease given that you do not have it. And 1% chance of telling you that you don't have it when you do, which, by the way, might be even more dangerous. Now, the test result is positive. Don't jump out of the window right now, yet. Why? Because then, under those circumstances, the chances that you have the disease given that result is only 2%. Shocking. Why? Because the probability was small in the first place, and we're going to see it's important for other areas. So let me show you why that suppose that now a thousand people walk in the door. Only one on average has that disease, but remember there was 5% chance of a false positive. So 50% on average are going to test positive. Yet the probability of the disease, given the, the positive result, is only 1 in 50, which is 2%. What this tells you is that the, why is it? It's because the probability from starting was small, 1 in 1,000. And this result, of course, is only as good as input, but it's much better than wild guesses, because in the face of that positive result, many people would guess that the probability was much higher. This is only to illustrate the point that sometimes thinking logically through this kind of information might be extremely helpful and might avoid some very serious mistakes. 
An analogy that I would give you is a signal of attack comes from a radar. Well, there are two uh, issues in interpreting that signal. One, what is, of course, the quality of the radar signal, and the second, uh, the attack probability depends on the state of alert. That is the probability that an, uh, that an attack might occur at a given time. That means that the bolt out of the blue is much less likely than an attack in the times of crisis given that signal. Okay, now, let me go back to intelligence analysis and some of the challenges. Certainty is rare, that's not new. Keeping track of prior knowledge and integrating the new knowledge that we have requires memory and recognizing that signals are imperfect and also signals are dependent. There is also some tendency to focus on one possibility and in fact, there, is, there are sometimes some pressures on the analysts to make the call. What does that mean, make the call? Pick the one alternative that's more likely again and present it as if they were sure of it. Now, it's difficult to assess and particularly to communicate uncertainty and why? Because it's not always welcome. People much prefer to have something that looks certain. Now, close fits are the thing or two uh, to say about uncertainty in intelligence and he put it as bluntly as he wrote. Uh, and let me quote these two. Many intelligence reports in war are contradictory even more are false, and most are uncertain. That is absolutely correct. In short, most intelligence is false, I'm not sure of that, and the effect of fear is to multiply lies and inaccuracy. Now, that is why I think that the, the science of risk analysis may have something to lend to intelligence analysis. Now, the question is, what is intelligence failure and intelligence success? Success, in my opinion, and that's only my opinion, is not guessing in the face of uncertainties and presenting the guess as, as certain, hoping, keeping your fingers crossed, that you get it right 100% of the time. In my opinion, it is describing accurately what is known, what is unknown, and what has changed. So there are two issues here. What are the chances of the different possibilities and what confidence do we have in the estimation? Those are entirely different questions. If there is a very tight election that has a 50-50 chance to fall one way or the other, we might be pretty confident in that probability, even though the result is still 50-50 because it will depend on a very small population, for example, of undecided people. Now, the value of intelligence information depends on its relevance to the policy uh, situation. Policymakers need a full description of that information and, in my opinion, not unrealistic crystal balls. That is why the relationship between analysts and policymakers is essential. And that means walking on a very on a tightrope. The analyst needs to know what the policy priorities are so that the, the analyst can focus uh, his or her attention on what is relevant information. But of course, the danger is to politicize the result, which has to be avoided at all costs. Now, that means that the analyst needs to think through a structure of these alternative scenarios, but generating these scenarios does not need to be an adversarial process. Sure, a red team is very helpful if we have a blue team that has been asked to converge on one particular hypothesis. But in my opinion, that generation of a whole picture should be part of the rational thinking of the individual analysts. It's also extremely important for the analyst to know the source for several reasons. 
uh, to understand the reliability and also to understand the dependencies. You may not want to treat as a new signal something that comes from a source that has already expressed, uh, given a message into the system. And when dealing with information, there are things that are important to remember. More information does not necessarily mean less uncertainty. You may have had very coherent information coming to you so far, and then all of a sudden, something entirely different falls on your desk, your uncertainty goes way out, and it's extremely important if that means that there is a possibility that you really need to pay attention to. It is very useful also to put caveats and adjectives when you present uh, information, one presents information of that kind, very likely, unlikely, etc. But in my opinion, not always sufficient to communicate the results. So the challenge is in communication at the end. How do you communicate these uncertainties to policymakers, to Congress, to the people who don't always understand what you're talking about, and to the press, who may not want to hear the full story? So in the end, let me say that facing, estimating, and communicating uncertainties may take a change of culture. The business world is more comfortable with it than the political world. Otherwise, what might happen is many firm predictions will look like failures because there were other possibilities that even though they looked less likely. And as I said in the beginning, the worst is not always certain. Thank you. Earlier this year, North Korea tested a nuclear device, and Iran announced that it had successfully started enriching uranium. This is not the first time that the United States has faced other nations hostile to it seeking nuclear weapons, nor is it likely, in my view, to be the last time we are going to face this kind of problem. And yet, looking at the debate and decisions in Washington, I become very concerned that we think about risk inaccurately in this context. I'll be talking about these risks in my, um, in my talk today. And I'll start by noting that one can see in the corridors of the Pentagon or in the State Department or in the National Security Council staff, the emergence of two beliefs beneath the bluster and the insistence that a nuclear North Korea and a nuclear Iran is unacceptable. And the two beliefs are first, an emergence of deterrence optimism. The idea that maybe deterrence will work. After all, it worked with the Soviet Union, it worked with the People's Republic of China, and you see two quotes here from an unnamed official and then from the president switching the red line from North Korea getting the bomb, which it has already done, to saying, well, we have to make sure we'll deter it from exporting it to terrorists. 
And the second belief is in proliferation fatalism. Given what's happened, given the spread of technology, perhaps there's not much that we can do if a country really wants to get nuclear weapons to stop them. And my first point about thinking about risk is to note how important it is not to have these two views interact in pernicious ways. Because it is very easy when there's an enormous amount of uncertainty to let your wishful thinking, to let your desires influence your senses of probabilities. And to the degree that you begin to believe that proliferation is inevitable, it becomes very tempting to think, well, maybe it won't be so bad after all. And to the degree that you begin to have faith in deterrence, it can reduce your incentives to do the costly, painful things that might prevent nuclear weapons from spreading in the first place. And I'll be discussing today why I think there are some things that the United States can and should do to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons and talk why we're not doing that today. The second problem I see that we do not think about risk accurately with respect to deterrence optimism is that we use the analogy of the Cold War as a false analogy, thinking that, well, nuclear weapons spread we didn't like. The Soviets getting nuclear weapons, we didn't like the Chinese getting nuclear weapons, but we were able to deter them. But those were very different states than the new nuclear proliferators, in particular than Pakistan and Iran. In the communist powers that got nuclear weapons, we faced a state with strong centralized control, with a KGB that controlled all matters of social life as well as matters of controlling nuclear weapons, and had their fingers into every aspect of the individual lives. In the two Islamic states, one that has gotten nuclear weapons, Pakistan, the other that is seeking them, Iran, you have a far more chaotic government structure, and one that in this area is particularly dangerous because it has an interaction between the military units or in the case of Iran, revolutionary guard units that control nuclear weapons and ties to terrorist organizations. Not only have these states used terrorism to, as a foreign policy tool, but Islamic fundamentalism is ingrained within portions of the military so that you have command and control procedures for nuclear weapons interacting with individuals who are interested in jihadi terrorist activities. We know in the case of Pakistan, for example, that although they have maintained relative good command and control if you keep nuclear weapons stored on a base, that they are very concerned about a state attacking them, they move those weapons away from the bases out into the countryside where they are far more vulnerable to an insider working with an outsider or with a terrorist group seizing those weapons. And so you see on the slide here that we know fearing a U.S. and or Indian attack in September 2001 before President Musharraf made the decision 
to side with the United States against the Taliban. Pakistan took its nuclear weapons and started hiding them around the countryside. A very dangerous activity. And we know, again, with the second quote, that in 1999, a number of officers who had intensive relations because they had helped set up and ran the Taliban, fearing a, a war with India, said, where can we hide our nuclear weapons so that the Indians can't attack them? Let's move them to Afghanistan. That would make them less vulnerable to an Indian attack, but would make them far more vulnerable to Al-Qaeda seizure. There are some things that have been done here, and if I can do a brief advertisement for CSAC activities, it's been mentioned that uh, Bill Perry, John Lewis, Sig Hecker, and I, and others have been deeply involved in discussing with Indian and Pakistani colleagues this particular problem. Here you see a group of uh, scholars and uh, diplomats, including General Mahmoud Durrani, currently uh, the Pakistani ambassador to the United States, and Ambassador Sharin Tahir Kelly, currently Condi Rice's deputy on UN affairs, uh, at a neutral site, walking across the bridge over the River Kwai, uh, outside of Bangkok, where we discussed nuclear weapons command and control problems and discovered that the Pakistanis in 2001 did not have personal reliability programs, psychological testing for their officers involved with nuclear command and control and controlling their, their weapons. And so we were very pleased to be able to brief them about how the United States uh, does these kinds of actions, what kind of emergency support teams we have in case weapons are seized by terrorists. And we're very pleased that afterwards the foreign minister announced that they would study that and very pleased that Brigadier Naeem Saleh came back to Stanford to announce that they were setting up a special program based on the U.S. system that they had learned about through the Stanford workshop processes. Now, after Elizabeth's talk, I am not going to venture what is the probability that a weapon could be seized out of the Pakistani arsenal, especially if there's a crisis and they feel they have to move them out of garrison. I would note that I believe it could be safely said that the probability is higher if they're away from the garrison because there's an inevitable trade-off between that, the security, putting them inside the garrison where you can have lots of forces to guard them and having them out in the countryside. And I would note that President, then General Musharraf, President Musharraf, did not follow Elizabeth's advice. And when asked by Ted Koppel, well, what's the probability, what's the confidence rating from 1 to 100, with 100 being perfect, that a weapon in this kind of situation could get seized by a terrorist organization? He said, well, I'm certainly I'd give it over 90 percent. And that may be right, but a 9 percent probability of terrorist seizure of a weapon is, in my view, very dangerous and unacceptable. And so as you think about Iran getting nuclear weapons, I'd encourage you to think beyond the deterrence paradigm. Because the problem of Iran getting nuclear weapons is not just that Ahmadinejad has such dangerous views about the Holocaust or about Israel. That's a significant problem, but Ahmadinejad might be susceptible to deterrence. The people who control the nuclear weapons, if they go into Iran, are far less likely to be susceptible to deterrent threats. The Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps 
is a quasi-military unit that was set up during the revolution because they didn't trust the military to support the revolutionary ideals of the new republic, controls the missiles, you know from recent exercises, controls the chemical weapon stockpiles they built after the war with Iraq. It has been the Revolutionary Guard Corps that has run the Hezbollah operations, not just the attacks on Israel out of Lebanon, but the Saudi Hezbollah organization, which destroyed the Kobar Towers in the mid-1990s, killing a number of U.S. servicemen, the highest number, of the highest number killed in a terrorist incident before nine, uh, between Lebanon uh, in the Reagan administration and the 9-11 attacks. And they have direct ties to the nuclear program. That is, they are the ones who are guarding the nuclear, civilian nuclear sites today, so-called civilian nuclear sites, and they are the ones who have helped finance through their own operations the nuclear program in Iran. Combining Islamic jihadi fundamentalism with nuclear command and control is a dangerous mixture and one that we're seeing emerging in Iran today. Well, that's why we should be worried. What can we do about it? And here I would simply note that it is surprising to me how little discussion there has been about the reasons why Iran might be making nuclear weapons. If you look back at past cases of nuclear nonproliferation, there are many cases, contrary to the nuclear um, fatalism view, in which states have thought about, have even started nuclear programs, and they've reversed their programs to freeze them. And the large number, the majority of those cases did so because they had security concerns that were resolved by other means. The reason why they were seeking nuclear weapons, their security problem was reduced, and therefore they were willing to compromise on this. The Iranians can't talk very often about their security concerns because it would blow their cover story that they're only building nuclear power. And the United States administration, as you see with Dr. Rice's all-too-clever quote here on the right, refuses to talk about security concerns with Iran and refuses to talk about security guarantees because it wants to keep open the option of using force for regime change to get rid of the Islamic Republic regime. You do see occasionally interest in Iran in some kind of security guarantee. After all, why are they developing nuclear weapons? Think about the access of evil speech. Or recall that in 2003, when Baghdad fell, a senior member of the Pentagon Defense Department was asked by an LA Times reporter, Sonny Efron, what lesson should Tehran learn from the fall of Baghdad? And he said, take a number. You're next in line. Or think about the president's response when it was leaked that U.S. military planners in the old office that I used to work in in the Pentagon had been told to plan for nuclear attacks against Iran in case a decision is made was to go to war, was asked, is that true? And he said, all options are on the table. Given that condition, I think it is not surprising that Iran 
is seeking to hedge its bets to develop a nuclear program under the cover of a nuclear power program, and that they have said, acknowledging some skepticism about how easy it would be to do this, but said that in their now leaked response to the European Union's offer to give nuclear power and some economic benefits to them if they withdrew their uh, uranium enrichment program, have said, as you see here in the quote, that we have to get, in addition to this, some kind of commitment and guarantee against any kind of military aggression or threat. So what do I see coming up? I think it is deeply unfortunate that the United States has painted itself into a corner where we insist that we won't talk to Iran directly about such security concerns until they do the one thing that they are holding out as their bargaining chip, which is their uranium enrichment program. We say we won't even talk to them until they give up the one thing that they want to use during the negotiations as a potential bargaining chip. I fear that the UN sanctions that are likely to be announced over the coming weeks are unlikely to be significant enough to change Iran's behavior. Having students not being able to take nuclear engineering courses, having some minor freezes on travel and on dual-use capability systems is not a very biting sanctions regime, but it's all that we can get given the Chinese and Russian positions, which are very different from ours. I think that the military options are equally, if not more so, problematic, not only because it is unlikely, given that we're facing a uranium enrichment program, which could be hidden and be put in buildings around the country, unlike a nuclear power reactor, which you need for plutonium, it's unlikely that we would get everything. And even the Republican Guards now have announced that they have over a thousand suicide terrorists that they have trained in case there is an attack. This will not just be a large-scale military operation. It will be a potential incitement to even further global terrorism. I do believe, however, that a negotiated settlement is possible. Some Iranian factions, indeed you see evidence of that in that document that I showed you earlier, have indicated some potential interest if their security could be guaranteed in having some limits on the uranium enrichment program. And we need face-saving devices, both to, able, both to enable the Iranians to say that they got something out of this deal, including, in my judgment, as a minimum, our taking our nuclear threat off the table against Iran and working towards some kind of security commitment where we could say, we do not like you, we do not support your human rights policy, but provided that you stop your uranium enrichment program and do not export terrorism, we are not going to pursue regime change by force. The consequences, if we fail, and this is my last point on risk, are grave. Here you see a chart we've developed at CSAC that shows how many states have developed nuclear weapons over time. And it looks rather comforting because it's a gradual increase, but it's a gradual increase over time. With North Korea moving forward and with Iran potentially, you should not think about just two more states joining, but take a look at the, higher, at the upper level, which are all the states that have 
power reactors producing plutonium, heavy water reactors. Add to that states such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia that have started nuclear programs for desalination purposes just in the last year. And you get a list of potential nuclear powers five to ten years down the road that would dwarf the problem that we have today. So what we have at stake in this Iran crisis is not just the risk of a nuclear Iran, but a much larger proliferation problem, and that instead of accepting what appears to some to be inevitable, we should work harder to prevent the unacceptable. I'll conclude there. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I've spent uh, most of my professional life at Los Alamos uh, dealing with nuclear matters, uh, but it's been a real pleasure to be here at Stanford, uh, at FSI, and particularly CSAC over the past year uh, to personally experience uh, what you were told this morning is this interactive, interdisciplinary, and international nature uh, of the collaborations. So, uh, Scott Sagan, uh, had emphasized uh, the importance uh, of uh, trying to control the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And I agree with him, and I remember Hans Blix, uh, who was previously Director General uh, of the International Atomic Energy Agency, having said, the fewer fingers on the nuclear trigger, the better. And so, however, what I want to focus on this morning is how do we keep the terrorists' fingers off the nuclear trigger. Now, it, it turns out nuclear terrorism or nuclear smuggling is really not a new concern. It's an old problem. In fact, the first major committee that was set up to study this was in the early 1950s, and it was chaired by Robert Oppenheimer, leader of the Manhattan Project, first director at Los Alamos. However, the problem then was very, very different. At that time, there were only three nations that were able to make uh, nuclear weapons uh, and nuclear materials, and that is United States, Soviet Union, uh, and Great Britain. So the number of materials were limited, the number of nations were limited, and the knowledge of all things nuclear, including nuclear reactors, uh, was still kept secret. And so you look at the situation today, and Scott gave you much of the background in terms of the nations that have the capability. So the main issues that are different today is there's greater supply, that is easier access to the nuclear materials. There's certainly much greater technological sophistication. In other words, you know, it's been 60 some years since the first development of the first bomb. And today those things are no longer secret to a large extent. All you have to do is Google for nuclear weapons or nuclear design, and you'll come up with thousands and thousands of references. And then it appears, particularly as we've experienced with 9-11, that the proclivity uh, towards greater levels of violence uh, is there, that's increased. And I give you a couple of quotes from Graham Allison in his book on nuclear terrorism. It's also uh, covered in the 9-11 Commission report showing the interest that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda has expressed uh, in nuclear weapons. I'll also show you a couple of photographs on here, Kazakhstan and Ukraine. Uh, these are countries 
uh, from which you've heard this morning, we got the weapons back, but we didn't get all the nuclear materials back, and I'll focus on that. So if we look at nuclear terrorism, we can look at it in three different forms. And first, a nuclear detonation, you know, the commonly recognized symbol of the mushroom cloud. Now, this is a real weapon of mass destruction. It's massive, it's devastating, there is no analog to a nuclear weapon. The second, you know, commonly technically referred to as an RDD, a radiological dispersal device, or popularly referred to as the dirty bomb, quite frankly, this is not a weapon of mass disruption. The radiological parts will kill rather few people, but it is a weapon of mass disruption. And it's important to recognize the difference between those two. And I'll touch on that on the very end of my remarks. And then somewhere in between, but closer to radiological dispersal, is what I call a sabotage of a nuclear facility, such as a nuclear power reactor, a storage facility, or so forth. Again, there you're dealing with the dispersal of radioactive materials and not a mushroom cloud. So what I'm going to focus on today is how do we keep the nuclear weapons and then particularly the nuclear materials out of terrorists' hands. Now there's two ways we can generally think of that happening. One is the terrorists actually acquire somehow uh, a ready-made nuclear weapon. And let me just say for this morning, I will say the likelihood of that is small, uh, although I would not want Elizabeth uh, to start asking me about the specific risk analysis we've done uh, in order to call this small. Uh, but in the end, nuclear weapons are still finite in numbers. They have serial numbers, uh, and in my opinion, they're quite well protected. The risk is not zero, but it's small. The greatest risk, instead, is terrorists will be able to get a hold of nuclear materials, the fissile materials that you've heard mentioned, and then somehow build a nuclear weapon. Now, it's not easy to build a nuclear weapon. However, the technologies have now been around for over 60 years. And in the end, I maintain that we must assume that given sufficient amount of nuclear materials, a few tens of kilograms, that a sophisticated terrorist organization will be able to somehow assemble and detonate such a bomb. And even if they only manage to get, let's say, 5% of a Nagasaki-like device, which would be one kiloton then, that still is absolutely devastating. That detonated in the center of New York, you're still talking about 10,000 or more deaths. And of course, if it's Nagasaki, you're talking about 100,000 deaths. So that destruction is so horrendous, and what I've indicated on here is this factor of millions. One of the things that's important to understand of what makes nuclear weapons so different from every other weapon that's ever been designed is the fact that it taps the energy of the nucleus that was first done in 1938, that is split the nucleus, and if you're able to split that nucleus and release the energy, you get millions of times the energy that you get through conventional means where all you do is access the electrons that circle the nucleus. In other words, when you burn wood, when you burn coal, when you do high chemical explosives. And it's that millions of times that makes nuclear so different. And so what's so different now is such a small amount of material in the hands of terrorists all of a sudden gives them the type of destructive power that only nations had before. 
And that's the change that we worry about today. Now, it turns out the technical stuff does matter in this business, and so I'm just going to give you a little bit of the technical background. You've heard it mentioned the two paths to the bomb, uranium-235 and plutonium. Now, it turns out that both of these materials, uranium and plutonium, occur in nature. However, not in the form that you can use them in a bomb directly, and that's very good news. In uranium, it turns out that this sort of high-octane or bomb version of uranium, what we call uranium-235, is actually today seven-tenths of a percent of the uranium ore. The other 99-plus percent is uranium-238, which does not uh, make a bomb. So what one has to do is to concentrate this bomb grade. And because the chemistry is the same for those two different types of uranium, that's very, very difficult. And that's where you've heard the terms enrichment comes in. Essentially, it's a process of concentrating this lighter version of uranium, the uranium-235, compared to what naturally occurs. And to make a bomb, you have to get up to 80 or 90 percent, even though everything over 20 percent turns out to be dangerous. And I show you uh, on your, on your right-hand side the uh, photograph of the Natanz facility, which was kept secret for many years. It's a big industrial facility. Below it are the centrifuges themselves, which are the method of choice today of spinning a uranium gas. The heaviest stuff goes to the outside, the lightest stuff goes on the inside, and you just keep doing this through thousands and thousands of these centrifuges in order to enrich it from 0.7% up to 80 or 90%. So this is a complicated industrial process. Plutonium occurs only in minute traces in nature, and so you have to make it. But you also make it starting out with uranium ore. But you need a reactor to make it. Uh, and uh, on your left-hand side, uh, I show a picture uh, of the plutonium-producing reactor in North Korea, which I've had a chance to visit. And then for the case of plutonium, just making the plutonium in a reactor is not good enough. You have to extract the plutonium away from all the other stuff that's in the uranium fuel or everything that uh, gets grown in. And to do that, you need a big reprocessing facility. Again, that's a reasonably major industrial process. And I show you a photo of the North Korean reprocessing facility. So the good news as far as terrorism is concerned, this stuff does not occur in nature as weapons usable. And you have to make it, and the making it is difficult, and that's beyond of the means of terrorist organizations. Unfortunately, there's lots of bad news. And that is they can steal it or divert it because for various reasons, either for weapons or for civilian reasons, we have made a lot of this stuff, and that's generally simply not appreciated today. And by a lot, uh, first of all, because of the fact of millions that I told you about, it takes so little, less than 10 kilograms for a plutonium bomb, a few tens of kilogram for a uranium bomb. And when I'm talking about less than 10 kilograms, you know, we're talking about a grapefruit-sized chunk of plutonium, very small. Grapefruit-sized chunk of plutonium wiped out Nagasaki. And so, however, we have made, we meaning the whole world has made, essentially two million kilograms of each of these two materials, more or less uh, much of it in weapons form. 
And I show you, you know, I apologize for all these numbers and words, but scientists always try to push everything, you know, into one presentation. Uh, and so if you're interested, I'm sure we'll post this on the web, it shows you on the left the countries, Russia, US, China, France, and UK, which are the original five nuclear weapons state that have lots of this weapons grade material. They have lots of this stuff. You know, Russia alone, much over a million kilograms of these materials. And then I mentioned a number of the other states from Pakistan to India, but also countries like Belgium, Switzerland, and so forth that have a substantial amount of these materials. Now, much of that in countries, for example, like Japan, would be of a civilian grade, made in light water reactors, which are good for making electricity. It turns out that plutonium is not as good for a bomb as the one that's directly made for, for bomb making, uh, and it has several disadvantages, but nevertheless, the fact of the matter is, especially for terrorists, that those materials can also be used for a bomb. So then keeping these materials out of terrorists' hands is important. It's actually quite appreciated today. President Bush, the leaders of the G8 in the last three or four summits have put that as one of the highest priorities. The problem is the technical difficulty of doing so is not appreciated. And first of all, it's this numbers problem that I just mentioned. There's so much there, you know, millions of kilograms, and it only takes, you know, less than 10 or a few tens if you're trying to avoid one nuclear terrorist bomb. And so even if you have an accounting and verification system that does 99.99%, you still have 10 bombs worth left over in the world. And of course, nobody comes close to 99.99%. The second, and actually most important popular misconception, is today generally it's said, look, all we have to do is just lock this stuff up. You know, if we can protect the gold at Fort Knox, why can't we protect the plutonium and the highly enriched uranium? Well, the reason is these are not gold bricks. You know, they're industrial materials. And that is, that means we process them, we move them around, they're recycled. They're dissolved, precipitated, cast, blended, mixed. They're processing losses, they're scrap. And so keeping track of this stuff, you know, to the gram or kilogram level is a major undertaking. And then it also turns out, you know, it's difficult to handle. This stuff is radioactive, means it decays, so it actually changes. This process is really highly, highly complicated. So since we can't have confidence in the numbers themselves, then we have to have a system, and we call it the safeguard system, a system that protects, controls, and accounts for these materials. Let me just quickly show you the nature of this problem in the U.S., about 10 years ago, we did a material balance study, saying essentially, how much did we ever make or buy, and then what do we have now? This is for plutonium. Well, you see the answers up here. We made or bought 111,400 kilograms, and, and at that time, we had 99,500 left. So you can see a lot of bombs worth was gone. Now, most of it we can account for, however, as you see in the red, there's a thing called inventory differences and what we call waste or normal operating loss. Together, over 6,000 kilograms. Let's say roughly 1,000 bombs worth. Now, why don't I worry today, you know, today, why don't I lose sleep at night about the American protection? It's because we recognized this problem at least 40 years ago. And we developed a rigorous accounting system. At Los Alamos, I had to account 
you know, for every gram of plutonium and, and where it was. And if indeed it went to waste, you had to account for that. The problem today is that most countries do not have such a system. The ones I have confidence in are the UK, France, United States. I do not have confidence in Russia, in China, in Pakistan. In the civilian side, actually a model is Japan. But that is one of the big difficulties and then also a place of interweaves with the issue that Scott mentioned. When you get to a totalitarian government, they are not good at having this type of a system. Uh, first of all, they just believe in gun guards and usually gulags to go along with that. There's also enormous corruption. The top authorities can circumvent anything. And it's just a whole list of concerns. They don't do baseline inventories. They don't do material balances because they never want to find out, you know, who was at fault. They used to keep two sets of books. You know, one for the authorities, one for someplace else. And one of Scott's favorite topics, social shirking, is really a, a problem in those countries because they say, that's the state's problem. You know, it's not my problem. So that's the problem. So whereas states can keep track of nuclear weapons, they don't necessarily keep good track of the nuclear materials. So now with that, having said that, what I want to do is just very quickly run through what does keep me up at night? You know, what are the six major threats? Now, I'm not talking about the governments having nuclear weapons. For example, in Pakistan, I'm not talking about a Pakistan-India uh, problem. I'm talking about nuclear materials from those countries getting into the hands of terrorists, terrorists fashioning a crude bomb and delivering it by boat to New York City or on the road to Moscow or to someplace else. And I maintain, regardless of where that bomb blows up, it's a disaster. Uh, for humankind. So first and foremost is Pakistan, because Pakistan has highly enriched uranium, they have plutonium, they have weapons, they have missiles, and they have everything that Scott Sagan told you in terms of the government and the problems of a totalitarian system. They also have the terrorists right next door, and the picture I have up there is of the world's uh, greatest black marketeer in the nuclear business, and that is A.Q. Khan. Number two is North Korea, and as Chip pointed out, I just came back from North Korea trying to deal with that problem. On one hand, the good news is they only have 40 to 50 kilograms of plutonium, and they do not have, as far as we know, any highly enriched uranium at this point. For a nuclear weapons arsenal, that's not much. For a terrorist, it's plenty. And, and what I'm concerned about today, particularly if push comes to shove, again, as uh, uh, Secretary Perry pointed out earlier, you know, not so much the nuclear weapons on a missile, but the effect it has on the rest of the system. And what I'm particularly worried about, nuclear materials coming out of North Korea, potentially into Iran, and from Iran to the terrorists. Number three is not a country, but Scott also mentioned that there are research reactors around the world that actually use for reactor fuel a material that can easily be turned into bombs with a little bit of chemistry. Uh, and both the uh, U.S. and Soviet Union uh, helped put those reactors all over the world. Now we're trying to fix that problem. A lot of progress made in the past few years. There's still too many, in too many places, not secured enough. Number four is what's left in Russia. Uh, and actually, that's where I've spent most of my time uh, over the past uh, 12 years working these issues. Uh, and the good news is that nothing really terrible has happened 
in the Russian nuclear complex, and I think none of, in, uh, of us in the business in 1992 would have predicted that. Uh, and so significant progress has been made through the sort of effort that Professor Perry has made uh, over the years in Nanlugar and the Russian efforts themselves, but they have not solved the intrinsic problems of having a modern safeguard system. Number five, no one talks about much. It's Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, Secretary Perry pointed out the weapons came back. Unfortunately, the materials did not come back. I've been to Kazakhstan a few times. That picture that you see there in the middle on the bottom uh, is my photograph of their main guard station to what used to be the Soviet test site. And I worry about what's left behind. Number six is Iran. And it's on the bottom of this list, although let me say my list goes on, but, but that's another talk. These are the big ones. Iran is number six because they haven't gotten there yet. They're trying to enrich uranium. They haven't gotten to the point where they've made weapons-grade uranium. If they do, again, for the reasons Scott Sagan pointed out, they move up there uh, with Pakistan. Now, to, to finish it up, uh, then let me just uh, say, again, in the spirit uh, of, uh, of Elizabeth's presentation, if you're going to do risk analysis, you know, this, the nuclear mushroom cloud terrorism problem that I mentioned is a low risk, high consequence. A much higher probability is radiological terrorism, and that is this dirty bomb scenario. Uh, and there, the main thing to remember, the material for a dirty bomb, there are millions of sources around the world because they're used in medicine, they're used in agriculture, used in industry. Not just plutonium, uranium, but lots of other radioisotope sources uh, such as cobalt-60, cesium-137, and many others. Uh, also, nuclear fuel makes a pretty good, uh, uh, nuclear fuel, nuclear waste, uh, make a good dirty bomb material. And, and subnational terrorist groups have shown an interest. However, one of the most important questions, and one that I think is a fantastic question for something like FSI to tackle is, why haven't terrorists gone this way so far? You know, one thing we can say, well, we've been lucky. But also, I think understanding terrorist motivation is really important. And it's interesting that so far they've stayed away from even radiological. And it's not because they can't get the source materials for a dirty bomb. And then the bottom line with radiological terrorism is, as I mentioned before, the radiological part or the radioactive part will kill rather few people. The people killed will be from the chemical explosive. But all the other consequences you know, the fear, the panic, the contamination, the economic impact is so enormous that it is, it would be an incredibly powerful weapon of what I call mass uh, disruption. And so here now, the cure, so to speak, or the fix here is important to put it into preparation, working with the first responders, working with the public, working with the news media, making sure that they understand that you're not going to kill a lot of people, that you have to take care of the other things. Very different from the nuclear mushroom cloud terrorism, where there will be instant massive, massive deaths. Okay, so let me say now, I'll, I'll wind up by saying that, you know, I have not painted you a, a very rosy picture, and I've not given you uh, many solutions. Uh, I've mostly uh, outlined the problem. But, but let me say, one thing that's clear of the big six that I mentioned, that each one of them takes a different solution. Pakistan and Iran I find almost impossible. I personally think North Korea could be solved, and I think Secretary Perry was very close to that uh, in 2000. Uh, however, 
One thing that I see as being common for all of these, and this is certainly where I would put my effort in terms of helping uh, to avoid nuclear terrorism, and that is to make sure that you get everyone in the, else in the world to appreciate the risks to themselves because of nuclear terrorism. You know, this is not and cannot be seen as America's war on terrorism. This has to be everyone's fight against terrorism. We cannot do this ourselves. I just showed you where those materials are everywhere. Every country has to work on protecting their own materials. And so if there was ever an area for international cooperation, this is the area. And I hope we can come to our senses and do that. Thank you. Thank you very much to our uh, panelists. I think we're off to a great start. Um, it's always nice to know more about risk rather than less about risk, as dark as those portrayals can sometimes be. Well, um, I also want to thank the panelists for um, uh, being as um, succinct uh, as they were. Uh, we're more or less back on track. So we have 15 minutes uh, for your questions, and then we'll break at approximately 10.45, and then the breakout sessions uh, will commence at 11 o'clock. So uh, anyone have a question, um, I'm happy to recognize you, and I would just ask that you do two things. One is that you do identify yourself, and two, indicate to whom your question is directed. Please. To Dr. Cornell, what did you... We have a microphone coming, if you can... Yep. We have mics. Wait one second to introduce yourself. Leon Kasev, to Dr. Cornell, what, in your opinion, is the cause for the intelligence failure regarding the Iraq war? Regarding? The Iraq war. The Iraq war. Oh. It was the misinterpretation of a sequence of signals against the background, and it was also probably truncating what was recognized as uncertainty because of a willingness to focus on the worst possible situation. That's the short of it. And so the problems were both organizational, political, and at the same time, a desire to base a policy on what was certainly not clear, but also a possibility. So taking the worst possible alternative and acting on it as if we were sure of it. In the, in the terms of what I talked about today. Now, of course, this could take about uh, you know, hours and, and months of thinking and reflection, but in terms of what I said today, it was focusing on that particular possibility, the bleak one, and we knew that in the past, Saddam Hussein had used um, the chemical weapons, so it was not a figment of the imagination, but it was uh, focusing on, on something that we did not know for sure. In fact, we had no clear signal of it, and again, taking it as if we were, because it was the alternative that we feared the most, the, uh, the cloud mushroom on Tel Aviv. Yes, Ken. I, I could just add one extra point to that. Um, 
Dr. Tom Finger is a former CSAC Stanford fellow who now is the director of the National Intelligence Council, the group that, that produces the national intelligence estimates for, their, for uh, the White House. Um, Tom meets every year with the Stanford undergraduates who go out with the CSAC Honors Program to critique their honors theses in the CIA. It's a really remarkable experience for them. Um, he was asked that question. Um, Tom, when he was helped write the NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, he was the asterisk guy at the bottom who disagreed with the assessment. And when asked, well, why was this, he gave two other factors. Not, not unrelated, but, but he identified two things. One, he said, when the President has made a statement early on about what he believes, it is really difficult to get analysts throughout the system to disagree with the statement that has already been made by the President. So when the President and the Vice President start saying he has weapons of mass destruction, it's harder for people down below to pass up information that disagrees. And then secondly, he said there was a failure of imagination, which I find fascinating. Everyone assumed that if Saddam didn't have a secret nuclear program, that he would come clean with the IAEA and the UN inspectors. And he didn't do that. Why? That must mean that he had a weapons of mass destruction. Instead, we now know from the Darfur report and other reports that have come out from Iraq that Saddam wanted to convince the U.S. and the international community that maybe he had gotten rid of nuclear weapons, but also wanted to convince the Iranians that maybe he hadn't gotten rid of nuclear weapons because he wanted to hold out a threat against his neighbors. And no one in the U.S. government had had the imagination to think about why Saddam might be doing something that didn't seem productive from our perspective. Thank you, Scott. Let me move to this side of the room. And again, can, 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 may I ask those who wish to pose a question to identify themselves and then indicate to whom the question is directed? Yes, sir. Let's hold on. Uh, we have a mic uh, on its way. My name is Bud Rubin, and I have a question for Scott. Seemingly, the Iranians are undergoing or undertaking a nuclear program and are looking for some security guarantees. Otherwise, that would not be so necessary in such a gross expenditure of time, effort, and money. Is the assurance from the United States, if it were granted, and, uh, sufficient to cause them to at least relinquish that program or hoe it off and become a pleasant and reliable member of the League of Nations or United Nations as they had been, would that be enough to satisfy them if we were to give such a, or is more needed? Right. Um, I don't think anyone knows for certain. We do know that some Iranians have expressed interest in such security guarantees. You can also imagine why they could be skeptical about that. The United States guarantee would have to be made in a public manner so that we, our honor and our word would be at stake. It would have to be done, I think, with other powers' involvement, the Russians and the Chinese in particular, so that if we broke our word, our relations would not just be damaged with the Iranians, but would be damaged with the Russians and the Chinese as well. Even then, I can't guarantee, nor can anyone else, guarantee to you that this would work. What I can tell you is that we are moving towards two other alternative futures. One is a potential strike, and the second is an acceptance of this horrible 
contingency of them getting nuclear weapons. And to go either of those routes without making an effort to find out whether a security guarantee could work, I think would be a great tragedy. Thank you, Scott. Now I'm going to go toward the middle, and then I'll move toward that side again. Um, yes, sir. Microphone's coming. Thank you. This is for Dr. Hecker. My name is Chip McIntosh. Um, other countries seem to appear, European countries seem to appear sort of passive about the threat from Iran. At least that's a perception that, that I see. And the other question is, um, let me, what, what do you think the chances are long term of a goal non-nuclear world being realistic? A, a non-nuclear world? Not, yes. Yeah. non-nuclear world. On, um, on the issue of the uh, European nations, uh, as far as Iran is concerned, I, I don't believe that they have been passive. Uh, in fact, the stepping up uh, to the plate to take over on the negotiations of the so-called EU3, I think has been uh, very substantial. And I, I've personally been uh, in, uh, in a meeting uh, on, uh, on nonproliferation in Moscow, uh, where we had representatives from Iran, Israel, uh, France, Germany, and a couple of other EU states. And, and I would say the hardest on the Iranians were actually, oh, aside from the Israelis, I would say that they were very hard, were the, the EU three members. And so they, they, in their own minds, feel that they have stepped out uh, and have told the Iranians that they cannot go this nuclear route. I think where the difference might come in uh, is their view of the benefit of sanctions. Uh, and, and that is they have a different view, at least as far as I can see, different view of the benefit of sanctions uh, compared to what the, the United States has. Uh, and, and that is, um, I think they view more that uh, sanctions are most effective before you apply them rather than after you apply them. So in my opinion, that's where the difference comes from. Scott may also want to uh, comment on that. In terms of a, of a nuclear weapons-free world, uh, you know, I thought the Secretary Schultz's uh, comments were very interesting. Uh, I've just recently read uh, a, a new a history of the um, uh, negotiations at uh, Reykjavik that he was involved in, and President Reagan drive in that direction. Uh, I personally like his idea of, of that's the aspiration uh, that this country should actually set out there. And somebody like Reagan was in a position where he could do that. Say that's what we should be driving toward. The difficulty, you know, is how you get there. Uh, and, and that's just that I think no one has really figured out. My own view of that is uh, that what we should do is make substantially greater reductions in the nuclear arsenals now while we have that opportunity. Uh, and then try to figure out how we get down to a, either a very, very small number. Uh, there's no question you'll never get rid of the nuclear terrorism threat for the reasons that I mentioned that you need so little. But, you know, it's not at all clear uh, that hundreds or thousands of nuclear weapons are going to help you to fight the nuclear terrorism threat. Thank you, Sig. We'll move to this side, and I suspect this will be the last uh, question at least for this session. Is there a hand? Uh, frantic to be recognized, going once, going twice. I'll start sweeping back toward the, toward the middle. I don't see a hand. 
Yes, ma'am. Microphone, please. My name is Sheila Andrus. My question is for any of the panelists. Uh, we have destabilizing factors related to re-emerging infectious diseases and environmental problems related to climate change. And I'm, I wonder how or if these are being factored into your risk assessment related to nuclear weapons. Let me tackle that first. From, from my own standpoint, uh, when I talk about the nuclear world and, and you know, the not-so-rosy picture I discussed today, if you either talk about nuclear terrorism, nuclear proliferation, you, you almost always come to the conclusion, so why don't we just get rid of all of this stuff? Uh, and the reason we don't, in my opinion, is because of risk analysis in the following sense, is that you must always look at the benefits as well as the risks. So you have to do the comparison of cost-benefit, uh, overall benefit versus risk. In the nuclear world, the same thing that gets you this factor of millions in destructive power gets you a factor of millions in terms of energy. And I personally think the greatest problem we face today is indeed the global climate change problem. And I don't see any way out of that without a substantial increase in nuclear power. And so we have to look at that as the benefit that we can derive and then we must manage the risks uh, that come with that. But I haven't applied the methodologies that uh, Elizabeth has. I would add that one of the great pleasures of being at a place like Stanford is not only that you get to, to discuss risk analysis with Elizabeth Pate Cornell or uh, bomb design and HEU versus plutonium uh, pathways to the bomb with Sig Hecker, it's that we have a group of social scientists, medical doctors, biologists, working on these other issues, and you'll be hearing from them uh, later. Um, one of what I thought was the most proud moment um, for me in the past years was to see my colleagues report uh, come out of the United Nations, Steve Sedman's high-level panel report on the major changes going on in the world. And one of the um, major tasks that that high-level UN panel had was to convince the members from the developing world who said, this terrorism problem, these weapons of mass destruction problem, that's your problem. You guys deal with that. We deal with infectious disease, poor water, environmental degradation all the time here. Those are our problems. And what Stedman and his panel pointed out was that the problems of infectious disease, failed states that can impact many states in the developing world have an impact on terrorism over the long term by creating safe havens, by creating anger, by creating recruitment patterns, and that terrorism, even if conducted against the United States, impacts these other countries through the global economic decline that occurs. And they pointed out with um, I think a very um, sad but very important note is that more people, more children, given the impact and what we know about the decline of infant mortality in the developing world when in the relationship to GDP, that more people may have died in Africa because of the 9-11 attacks than have died in New York City. So that these problems are interleaked in complicated ways 
And our efforts to try to understand that and work together are absolutely essential to tackle both problems. And now for the engineer's answer. Uh, when we do risk analysis, the way I presented it today, we look at the different scenarios, their probabilities and the consequences. I did not spend much time on, on the consequences, but there is absolutely no question that uh, nuclear, um, the threat of a nuclear terrorist attack involves serious consequences that are of different types, the immediate ones, what, what Sig was talking about, uh, what would happen in New York City if you had such an explosion. Then there are the, the medium-term and the long-term consequences. Those are difficult to assess, but it's essential. And it's not only the human consequences, it's the economic consequences, it's the uh, climate consequences. And the whole interactions of different elements of that human system in which we live, that takes the involvement of many different people of different kinds of skills and talents. So the answer is yes. Now, if I, if I move to, uh, to the question of biological weapons, you can imagine that then the scenarios involve, of course, not only uh, where, what, and how much of it, but where is it going to go from there? How is it going to get dispersed? And there was a famous exercise at uh, Chicago O'Hare uh, International Airport uh, where uh, in, in that exercise, which was a simulation, there was the release of some, some kind of nasty uh, virus. The question is how much is released, and you can imagine in an airport, where does it go from there, and how fast does it spread before we begin to understand what it is, and we can kind of quarantine whoever has been exposed. So uh, to make a, a long story short, yes, we do look at the consequences, and that's one of the difficult parts of the exercise, as much as trying to begin to assess the orders of probabilities. And I would like to make sure that I do not give the impression that we have uh, seven significant digits in our computations of probabilities. It's trying to get an idea of the general likelihood, and in the same way for the consequences, we cannot be very precise. But we have to make sure that we have the elements of the problems right. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, before we break, let me uh, just, uh, and thank our panelists, let me um, um, look forward with you uh, through the next several hours. When we conclude this session uh, in about 30 seconds, there'll be approximately 10 minutes or so for you to make your way to the breakout session of your choice. There are three of them uh, that we're offering this morning that do explore some of these very, very linkages that this uh, last uh, question uh, posed. We have staff out um, in the lobby area that will direct you to uh, the specific room where the breakout session is being held. They're all being held um, in this building. Uh, those will run from 11 to 12. Then there'll be a break, and then we'll reconvene at this, in this room at 12.30 for lunch and to hear uh, the lunchtime address uh, that we have lined up for you that I don't think you're going to want to miss. At the end of, of lunch, when that's done, then I will come up and sketch out the afternoon. So again, um, if you're wondering which way to go, just go through the doors and the staff will orient you toward the correct breakout session. But before we leave, please join me in thanking our panelists for an excellent presentation. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U.
and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.